So my question is, what do you like about him? Well, this, this one's actually easy. Donald Trump and I disagree on almost everything, but I do like how generous he is. Uh, just last Friday, he handed me this election. <laughs> Mr. Trump, one thing you like about Secretary Clinton. I like that she's a fighter and that she doesn't give up, which is why I need all my supporters to get out there and vote on Election Day. Mark your calendars, write it down. Here's the date. It's November 35th. <laughs> and live from, from New, New York, York it's Saturday. Welcome to the Saturday Night Live After Party. Tonight we'll be discussing Season 42, Episode 3 of Saturday Night Live with host Emily Blunt and musical guest Bruno Mars. I'm John Murray, and joining me this week is Steve Finn. Steve is a comedy aficionado, award-winning improv performer, and the host of Transparency on CHMR 93.5 FM in St. John's, Newfoundland. You can connect with Steve on Facebook at TransparencyCHMR, and you can connect with us at SNLAfterParty.fm. All right, Enjoy. Reddit user, this is a one-time offer. His question, where does Kate McKinnon currently sit in the pantheon of greats? So, let's bat that around. I love that word, pantheon. Yeah, yeah, well-crafted question. Obviously, you know, she's very successful on the show. She's the go-to female performer for character work. Sure. I would say Kristen Wiig is, is the most comparable. You know, did a ton of characters, showed a lot of range, and had some had reasonable success in film. Uh, I believe that to be the future for Kate. I hope it is, but my money is on her being somewhat of a of a moderate movie star on the level of Kristen Wiig. It's a pretty obvious comparison to make. And uh, the jury's still kind of out on Kristen Wiig. Like Bridesmaids was huge. Like that kind of solidified her as as bankable, but she's made other choices, you know, doing some smaller indie films and unconventional roles and background roles. And I think because she's more interested in having fun in her movie roles, she isn't necessarily making the most like career savvy <laughs> decisions. I have a feeling Kate McKinnon, I think she has a little bit more drive and ambition to play things smart. She's got things planned. <laughs> like she, she kind of already knows where she wants to be in three years. So Anyways, I don't even know if we really answered that question, but. <laughs> well, I'm, I thought it was a great discussion and, and I want to thank uh, that Reddit user for asking it. Yeah, I, I can't say that we necessarily provided a good focused assessment of the, the question posed, but as a rabbit trail, it was fun. So, you know, we'll see, see what people think. Okay, so let's get into the show. Uh, the cold open this week, it is the town hall debate sketch. Considering that this is our third run at a debate with Alec Baldwin's Trump, are we still enjoying this? Is it still feeling fresh and fun or, or are we desperately in need of shaking things up for the cold open? You know, every time I watch a debate sketch, I'm like, you know, that was great. That was funny. Maybe we can move on to something else next time. Mm -hmm. And then another debate airs. And all I can think of is, oh, I can't wait to hear what Saturday Night Live has to say about this. Sure. So you, you can't really, you can't fault them for, for constantly doing debate sketches at this time. 
And I don't think it's getting stale because it's, you know, it's, they're being fed inspiration for new material every time there's a debate that airs. Okay. I enjoyed it. I thought that this was probably the tightest that they've had so far. It seemed like week one, everyone was still just getting their footing. Week two, because we had the last minute Trump hysteria and all of the rewrites that went along with that, it felt very shaky and and unpolished. Whereas this week, it seemed like they they had this tacked down pretty early in the week, so it felt more well-rehearsed. It felt like they were able to uh, just continue to punch it up a little bit more. It felt a little more refined and polished. So I felt that this was the best representation of what they've been shooting for so far with the debate sketches. And uh, to me, it was, uh, I found it to be the one with the most memorable jokes so far, or the most on-point characterizations from either of the camps. For sure. And I got to give the writers props for taking such a, a hostile environment that that sketch or that I keep saying sketch when I mean to say debate. Well, it's hard to tell them apart sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> true, true. But yeah, when I was, wa- I actually admittedly turned off the debate. I could not watch it because it was so tense and Donald Trump was practically yelling at the moderators. Right. All I could think of is how could they take something so uncomfortable and spin that to be a humorous sketch on a comedy show. And you know what? There is really only one direction to take it is to get super surreal. Yeah. (laughs) So they straight up come out and get into Kung Fu stance, calm before the storm. This is here it comes. Yep. And then all the the jaws lurking, mm-hmm. the uh, the the John Williams score, you know, it was pretty much the only direction to take, even though I didn't expect it, and uh, it portrayed the the mood of the debate and made it humorous, which was quite the challenge. Yeah, yeah, I think you actually touched on the critical point here, with the debates themselves being so bizarre and so over the top and already almost cartoonish in a, in a sad way, like in a sad way for we weep for the U S kind of way, they're already satire. <laughs> so in order to make it funny, <laughs> you have to heighten above what is already ridiculous in real life. They, they were bringing a heightened bit of surreal overtures to it to try and remind you that it's okay to laugh at just how insane (laughs) this actually is in real life. And uh, it's a hard line to walk. I don't know if anybody is really figuring out the perfect way to mine Trump and Clinton for humor right now because it's gotten so caustic and hostile. But I think this is probably as close as anyone's gotten. And I think it's probably the best stab at it SNL's taken. All right. Okay, so moving on. Hallelujah. Come on, get happy. Uh, Emily Blunt wants to bring a little bit of positive energy back to SNL in the midst of the dark cloud of Trump hysteria. How do we feel about the monologue? I don't know how much stage experience she has. I only know her as a a film actress, but she felt right at home there. It wasn't awkward at all. So Emily Blunt, you know, against all odds, really nailed it in this monologue. Okay. She didn't feel awkward in the opening moments of the monologue when she had to take command of the stage. But I felt that the monologue as a whole conceptually, and then how it was executed, I was feeling very awkward watching it. I felt that there was a lot of beats that fell flat or 
were kind of hung out to dry, like without a reaction. There was just a lot. Yeah. There were a lot of little moments that she couldn't control or kind of pull back into a humorous tone. Overall, I didn't think the monologue was a win, but I'll be the first to admit that after Lin-Manuel Miranda's monologue last week, I don't know if there was anything that the show could have come up with that would have felt satisfying. So I don't want to be overly critical because it was serviceable. It was fine. Like, yeah, but you're, you're not wrong, John. I mean, it was really busy. Yeah. There were seven cast members involved. Right. With what's supposed to be a monologue (laughs) and with puppies and, (laughs) and, and they were relying on audience members for beats and stuff, which is always horrible, right? Because the audience members, the camera gets on them and it's like a deer in headlights, right? Like <laughs> nervous laughter. <laughs> I hope this puppy licks me, but they get the camera off me. You know, like yeah. there is so much tension that immediately comes up when you complicate it with people that shouldn't be on camera. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's okay when a seasoned comedian that knows how to engage an audience does it. Like when Sarah Silverman did it, it was awesome because she, she knew how to take whatever reaction she got and spin it the right way to keep yeah. the energy. Yeah. But in this situation, you're just throwing a whole bunch of, of gags out into the audience and hoping that it feels right on screen. And it just didn't, I think it was a nice try. I don't think it played. Yeah. I could agree with that. Yeah. Okay. Moving on. So keeping with our theme of awkward stilted bits that don't necessarily come together, escorts two young suitors who hire unconventional escorts and does hilarity ensue? You tell me hilarity might be a strong word. I didn't think this was a total clunker, but probably one of the weaker bits of the night, Mm -hmm. but I mean, it ended strong with a punchline. Let's, let's go lose our virginities. (laughs) Yeah, that was fun. It was everything in between that was making me cringe. Yep. Uh, You felt it wasn't a total loss. I felt it was, Pretty close to a total loss. I just felt like from the opening shot, the the second that they open the door and Leslie Jones tramples her, uh, Emily Blunt's first line to, you know, when they're on the couch and they're going back and forth with the weirder and weirder escalations, just the amount of time to move from close up back to wide shot, everything about it, just it, 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 something about it had no energy or the air just kept getting sucked back out of it before it could really feel fun. Emily Blunt, she tried, she couldn't hold it together. Her little, uh, whatever her, her catchphrase was, that was funny, but not enough to hang a sketch on. Yeah. All right. Melania Nade. It worked for me, but that is only because I have watched Lemonade. Okay. It's a, it's a brilliant visual album, uh, especially Sorry, where it kind of uh, fails is that without the context, you might be a bit lost. Sure. But since that wasn't your situation and you were coming into it with that background knowledge, was there any brilliance to this? Yes, but not so much in, in laughs, in comedy. I was more impressed by how they were able to visually pretty much recreate that video, almost shot for shot. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, this is a comedy show, you know, so I want to be laughing as well. Were there enough laughs to justify putting this on the show? Not enough. And maybe there's an alternate universe where they were a bit more successful in the writing of the lyrics and, uh, and what they wanted to say about the women in Trump's life. Right. But we don't live in that reality. We live in this one. So that left a lot to be desired. Yeah. In my opinion. Yep. Uh, fair assessment. I hadn't seen the video. I went back and watched it after the fact because I wanted to give 
the sketch a fair shake and make sure that I wasn't writing it off simply because I was out of the loop. The problem that I had with it after studying the reference material and then coming back and watching it a few more times was the original song is very sparse, right? Like it's not a dense song lyrically and there's not a lot of ways to inject a lot of dense jokes like rapid fire one after another to really build a lot of enjoyment comedically into it just because of the nature of the song. So while I felt the concept was good, you know, you've got uh, disenfranchised women lashing out at the the men who wronged them. I get that there's similarities there. I get that we had all of these impressions in the bag already with the cast. So why not throw them in a, into a, a video? And I really like the conclusion of the matter where they can't put their money where their mouth is and they all become subservient to Donald again. Like there was a lot conceptually to like about it, but the actual song and the limitations that it, it imposed because of its lyrical structure just didn't give them enough room to build a lot of comedy into it. And that's what made it at least for me fall flat. Yeah. Moving on 16th annual Ann Arbor short film festival featuring Qua. Did this ring true? So true, John. So true. And, and I'll tell you, in, uh, in my second year of film school, I was like, hey, I love comedy. I'm going to make a comedy film. And I worked on it. And I worked on it. I never worked harder on anything, which isn't that hard for me. Okay. But I digress. And this is what happens when, when you <laughs> work on something that you're so passionate about it. You get so close to it. You fall in love with it. Yep. And you feel, because you worked so hard on something, mm-hmm. it must be good, right? <laughs> yep. So I was, I was full of myself. I thought it was the bee's knees. I was there, you know, with the program rolled up in, at the screening, you know, that, that pensive director look. Orson Welles. Yeah. <laughs> More like Ed Wood in this yeah, case. Okay. And it wasn't until like four or five years later, I was like, oh yeah, that film I made. Why don't we put that on? <laughs> that it all came crashing down. All of that delusion of... <laughs> of talent. Mm-hmm. So I get this, uh, this mentality behind, you know, screening a, a joke of a film, if you could call it that, mm-hmm. and then expecting people to have like a hundred questions or even people to friggin' show up to the thing. Yeah. So it rang true to you uh, as someone who can put yourself in the shoes of all of the people who went on stage to do the Q and a mm-hmm. now let's pull back and look at it just kind of from a sketch standpoint. Uh, the gag here, there's a few gags. There is the charming take on, like you said, the film creators who are more in love with their project than it deserves. There's, there's that, which is funny and they play that up, but then there's also the crux of the sketch, which is there's only one person in the audience left after everyone who came out to the screening because they were involved in the project goes up on stage to field questions. So poor Vanessa Bayer, who, you know, like casual movie goer is now put in the position of having to carry this entire Q and a on her back. (laughs) And she does it as admirably and sincerely as she possibly can, but there's just no escape for it. (laughs) Yeah. So that's, that's the, the bit Now, with all of that mixed together, did the sketch, just as a piece, hold up for the the average SNL viewer? I think it did, Mm -hmm. and uh, it's all thanks to Vanessa Bayer. Yeah. And I'd like to take this time to say why I love Vanessa Bayer. (laughs) 
Why do you love Vanessa Bear? She plays that straight character role while also being genuinely funny with her delivery mm-hmm. and just the way she stumbles through that sketch, trying to be polite and not hurt anyone's feelings yep. and, and making it so funny. That's what I love about Vanessa Bear. Yep. Period. Okay. The show would not be nearly as strong without her because like you said, there are certain roles that can only be filled by someone who understands how to make the most of the quiet, awkward looks that have to buoy the ridiculousness around them. Mm -hmm. You need to be able to figure out how to make the audience think that you're looking at the situation sincerely, like your reactions play true, no matter how ridiculous everything around you is getting. And she's got that nailed. Yeah. Agreed. I think for, for my money, this may have been one of the strongest live pieces of the night. You might be right there. Yeah. Okay. Moving on. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about chonk. Just You're not pronouncing it right. No, no. How did they pronounce it? Chonk. Well, <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> I, I think this was really smart and really well put together. Mm-hmm. This is the hardest I've laughed so far this season. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this was a good one. I might not have laughed this hard anytime last season. I couldn't breathe. And they really nailed the whole body positive movement <laughs> with all those buzzwords, yep. you know, confident, beautiful, <laughs> queen, goddess, you know. Your unique shape. <laughs> yeah. And they even like presented in, in cursive writing on the screen. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that sketch would have been nearly as funny if the word that they found to encapsulate everyone who's not part of the super pretty club, if they hadn't found the word chonk and if that wasn't such a perfect turd just to drop on top of the the sketch, I don't know if it, if it would have played as well. I think they really nailed it. I, yeah. I can't think of a better word to, to throw in that sketch to make it play. So I, I thought it was really well done. I think probably the best pre-tape of the night for my money. Oh yeah. So Bruno Mars they mixed things up a little bit with his first musical performance. They bring the camera down the hallway to his dressing room and he comes out. I'm going to say almost like Michael Jackson style, just like aggressively pursuing the camera, driving it forward until they're back on the stage. They've got dancers on the floor. They've got, they're, they're really trying to bring a lot of life to this performance. Mm -hmm. What did you think of them kind of mixing it up a bit? We don't really usually see that kind of approach on SNL. And I remember you uh, saying, John, that when you were in the audience for the, for the rehearsal, the dress rehearsal, you, you mentioned how cramped and claustrophobic that stage is for the musical guests. Right. And that's always been noticeable to me as well, even watching it on, on television. So it was a nice change for them to open it up and make more use of the studio space. It was definitely refreshing to take a different approach to the musical performance. I thought it was fun. And the song itself (laughs) from the very first beat, I think it was obvious that this was an, an intentional callback to the oldest of the old school hip hop. Did you pick up on that or what did you feel that they were going for with this? I didn't pick up on that. And that's probably because I'm not, I'm probably not as familiar with that uh, genre from that era as you are. 
So I, I'm, I'm going to have to take your word on it if that's what the vibe you got. Do you remember, this was back in the Tina Fey era of update, Horatio Sands and Jerry Minor, they had a reoccurring bit on Weekend Update where they would come in as, well, they were like the inventors of old school hip hop. Oh, okay. And during that, they would do a little like play on old school hip hop and they would go, I shouldn't do this. I'm too white to do this. They would go like a rip rop, a ribbity rip rop, a rip rop, ribbity do. Anyways, that little musical goof that they do, that is the quintessential hip hop structure or loop and the same kind of vocal um, rhyme on top of it. So <laughs> either go back and watch those old uh, Horatio Sands, Jerry Minor bits, or go back and listen to some old school hip hop. And I think you will hear this Bruno Mars song coming through loud and clear. Absolutely. Okay. Weekend update comes out again with another salvo of wall to wall Trump. When do we get to the point where it's too much Trump? Yeah, see, that's the thing. It is a lot of Trump-centric material. I could be wrong, but if I were to keep a tally, I'd say I could go back a good 15 to 20 episodes, and they would almost exclusively start Weekend Update with a Trump joke. Not just start it, but have a solid block, like almost right up until they introduce the first you know, desk guest. It's just assumed at this point that it's all Trump all the time on Weekend Update. I'm starting to feel the fatigue here. It's there's gotta be someone at 30 rock that says, okay, we all hate Trump, but we're not making the show better by making it all about Trump. Yeah. I think behind the scenes, they're probably saying to each other, I wish we weren't expected to be so relevant right, to such a level because we really want to move on from this. Yeah. I, I, you know, that's they're, they're doing their job and they're probably mandated to tailor it, to contain all this Trump stuff. But I'd say as human beings, they're probably over it and ready to yeah. make some new jokes about new things. I'd be willing to bet most of them are, but there is something pushing this forward, right? Like at the end of the day, there is someone who's still making the call that this is what's going to make the cut for the show. I feel like there's got to be a few really passionate people on the writer's staff that are working overtime to keep as much ridicule and heat on Trump as they possibly can. Even when there's no real joke there, there's a lot of these weekend update jokes that feel like it's a condemnation first and a joke second. And I don't really like that at this point. Fair enough. I want to give uh, a shout out to Colin Jost for nailing a very quick, but important moment right after Che did the Michael Jackson joke. You know, if you, if you let that silence linger a little too long, the audience is going to, you know, sour up on you. I think he came in at the right time and said, cool. Yep. And broke the tension, which really needed to happen. And I'm glad they went out on that ledge. Sure. I think Che's joke that, that led into uh, Joe's opportunity to uh, validate it and, and give everyone permission to move past it. I think that joke was surprisingly smart. Um, just in its, well, it was, a, it was a funny joke, but in its structure, what you assume is the punchline was only the setup for the real punchline, which I think 
what what came to mind for me when I heard that joke was that that was a little bit of kind of what Norm Macdonald used to do when he was on update was he would set up a joke and he would give you what you thought was the punchline and make you groan a little bit. And then when you think the joke is over and he's moving past it, he would come back in with something that was a little bit more dark or devastating and really just kind of knock you off your feet because you don't think that he's going anywhere else with the joke. And Michael Che kind of did that. Yeah. The original joke was just, um, if we're talking about Michael Jackson's indiscretions, the only things that come to mind for him are the albums that weren't great. <laughs> That's, that is what, uh, his take on Michael Jackson's low point was. And then at the end, just off the cuff without really giving you a chance to dwell on it. He also mentions that, <laughs> you know, he well don't have to go there, but the point is it was really smart and it caught the audience off guard. And that's why Joe then had to come back in and reboot and say, okay, now we can actually put that to bed and, and keep going. So the whole thing end to end, both of their sides of that, I thought, I thought that was well executed. Fair enough. Olya Pavlotsky. Uh, she's back this time. She's talking about us, Russia relations. I just love the outward cheerfulness of the character, but also that inner misery. She's a very good sport about being so downtrodden. She makes suffering lovable. Yes. <laughs> okay. So we've got a beat on the character and her motivations. Do you feel that this was smart, necessary, or the best use of that character? Yeah, it's a, it's a good use. And I think the best test you could give a weekend update character is, you know, take what's going on in the uh, in the climate of the world and and write material for that character and if it if it can work if if that character can use its voice to put something across about current events then i think that is a well developed appropriately placed character uh, at the weekend update desk okay well if that is the test of a solid weekend update character then i have a feeling that you'd agree that Laura Parsons is probably welcome as well uh it's it's an enjoyable performance from vanessa the character is very one note sure it's, it's mad libs basically yep you could say that same thing about david ortiz and stefan sure there's there's a lot of paint by numbers weekend yeah, update characters there are but with those two examples i think there's a little bit more to it than what encompasses the lower person's character okay but they added that element of her trying to audition for Mary Poppins. <laughs> yes. They're never going to take this sketch and do anything more than it's doing right now. So at a certain point, it will be played out. Cool. Okay, moving on. Now, in the back half of the show, our first sketch after update is the Burger King drive through sketch. And I have a lot of questions about it, but not a whole lot of conclusions. I'm struggling to even figure out what the premise of the sketch was or what they were trying to accomplish with it. And I don't know if I'm overthinking it and it was just meant to be just a bunch of silly characters and visual gags, or if there was something else they were trying to hit and I, it just went over my head. I think I can help you. Uh, this was obviously one of those sponsored sketches that we were told oh. uh, we would be getting. It's Burger King. They were using legit Burger King uniforms. They were yep. mentioning dish after dish of things available at Burger King. We have the Angry Whopper and the Angry Whopper has such and such. Oh my goodness. How come I didn't see that coming a mile away? 
<laughs> Don't cry, John. Well, but but this is exactly what we were talking about leading up to this. We were asking ourselves, wait a minute, if the sponsors are coming with the expectation of getting a sketch that meets their promotional needs, is the sketch going to feel organic or is it going to have a voice or is there going to be genuine comedy driving it or is it just simply going to be a vehicle for you know saying as much about the sponsor as you can squeeze in without people necessarily thinking too much about it. Right. I don't know if this is the best introduction to what they have planned for these sponsored pods. The way I see it, you know, Burger King purchased this sponsorship placement mm-hmm. and the writers, you know, basically had to say, what can we do funny with Burger King mentioning all the things they want us to mention, blah, blah, blah. There's nothing less pretentious than all American fast food, drive through High fat, high carb, extra <laughs> cheese, Burger King. Fair enough. Yep. And what is the most extreme juxtaposition of a customer to show up there? It would be the elite, snobby, trust fund, uh, pseudo aficionados of crappy art <laughs> in Manhattan. Sure. So <laughs> whatever the larva of Andy Warhol is, this is what we're looking at. Yeah. So these ne'er-do-wells show up in a, I don't know how many compartments of a limousine (laughs) and uh, they show up at Burger King and are so out of their element (laughs) that they can't simply order a meal. You know, I thought it was a funny concept to explore that. Okay. That collision. That all went right past me. Like I got the um, fish out of water kind of part of it that yes, these are, these are the type of people that are incapable of functioning in normal human society, they live in this bubble of art and indulgence and just up their own buttedness. <laughs> I understand that. And there is some humor in that. I just don't think there was anything else there driving it forward. You know what? You you might have less to complain about if it weren't for the fact that they had to waste so much time cramming in mentionings of yes. <laughs> Cheeto dusted chicken fries. Yeah. Jesus, that doesn't sound good. No. <laughs> Yeah. So again, this is exactly where my frowny face takes over because I think this is a good demonstration then of if we were simply crafting the sketch around the creative needs of making it the funniest, smartest thing we can come up with, then that sketch would have been half as long. And it would have had some sort of a structure that would have moved past the let's talk about what we want to order part of it. All of that would have been secondary to finding the humor in the sketch. And instead it was the most important factor in the writing and the sketch. I think if we're being honest, I think it really probably suffered because of that. Yeah. But I mean, look at all the money that went into that elaborate set and and costume design. Well, when you got big top tier franchise sponsors throwing billions of dollars at you to make their burgers sound less craptacular. <laughs> yeah, exactly my point. <laughs> yes, they're they're Cheeto laden chicken fries. <laughs> oh. Um, so this is this is the additional show content that they're offering us for our 30% ad reduction. And I for one am not happy right now. Yeah, you can keep it. Yeah. Just give us the show they got to figure out a better way if they're going to do these heavy handed product placements, the the writers have to get up to speed on how to do it with a little bit of style. (laughs) You know, there has to be a joke there too. You can't just rely on Bobby Moynihan looking super creepy to get, (laughs) to get five minutes of sponsored content to play. It just, that is not cool. SNL. He wasn't half as creepy as Beck though. Come on. He takes the cake in that sketch. 
Bobby Moynihan has an ability to creep me out. Do you, <laughs> do you remember the, the sketches where I think they were in space and he has a little kitten? I miss my little kitty cat. Sometimes I'll put a little hat on him and pretend he's a little man. My little businessman. And then I give him a little kiss. <laughs> a little business kiss. <laughs> oh my God. That's me behind closed doors. Oh, and he just, he, he has the ability to just twist his face in the most ridiculous and adorable way at the same time. Like kind of like I'm a bad little boy. Like he can kind of make that, <laughs> make that face. And it's just super creepy and a little bit mentally off, but adorable at the same time. It, he, there's just, there's something that he can do. And he did it in those sketches with the, with his little kitty cat. My little kitty, my little kitty cat. My little kitty. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, the thought of Bobby Moynihan and his little kitty cat has brought me back from the brink of cursing SNL for this, this heavy handed sponsored content. Good, good. Let's see if there's anything redeemable in the back half of the show that we can hang our hat on here. After the Burger King catastrophe, we get a pre-tape called The Sink that is meant to be the heartfelt expressions of this sink while it's undergoing an identity crisis. Right. Was this funny? Did it make its point? Was it sharp or was it maybe a little too high concept and too light on the jokes? Once you understand what they're doing, you've pretty much got all that the joke entails. Sure. Up until someone turns on the faucet and she starts to drown a little bit. So it had that little bit of a, of a, of a punch halfway through, but yeah, you know, overall from start to finish, there wasn't a whole lot there other than here's the concept. Isn't that funny? Let's move on. Yeah. And you know, in their defense, they didn't spend a whole lot of time. on it was a very short piece. Sure. I wanted to believe it was really smart and maybe the joke just was smarter than I am. Like I really wanted to believe that because the presentation was so polished and because there was so much, visual, uh, flair, but I think when it comes right down to it, all they were really trying to say with it. And I think the the weakest part of it is that the real joke here is that the sink is coming to terms with the fact that it is ridiculous, right? Like I think the idea was, could a sink have a crisis about being such a stupid sink? Yeah. Which I guess there's a, you know, there's a concept there, but you have to listen very closely to that whole minute long monologue to try and parse that that is the intention of what the sink is feeling. And you need to then feel that that's also funny at the end of it. And I just, I had, I just had trouble investing in it that way. Yeah. For me anyway, it was very thought provoking mm-hmm. and that kind of took center stage because I found myself thinking, you know, wow, that's, that's so true. We chopped down a tree to repurpose it for our uses, but that tree has no say in what it will become. It does not choose to become a book or a shelf mm-hmm. or, you know, uh, anal beads. Uh, so it's, <laughs> I, I felt, I felt that way about the sink and, and the glass blower that made it into this pretentious, <laughs> uh, loud, you know, out of place, a uh, centerpiece in, in someone's bathroom. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, why does anyone listen to this crap that we spin? Um, Next con Honda robotics lounge. I'm going to, I'm just going to give my take on it. 
because I don't know how much there is to say on it. I don't even have anything to say. So go ahead. Yeah. There's just, this is not super smart. (laughs) The robots are being short circuited and then it turns out it's Leslie Jones. So there's a little bit of a punchline at the end there, but because the whole sketch it lumbered through and there was a lot of misbeats and it was just shaky how they were unfolding that idea. Mm-hmm. I don't feel it came together properly. I think Emily Blunt dressed up as a robot going, Would you like an ooey, gooey, yummy, yummy, delicious quesadilla? <laughs> I think that that moment itself was bizarre and fun. And I'm, I'm laughing just thinking about it. I was laughing at the time. I'm laughing just thinking about it. But that can't be the only fun beat in a sketch this long. And this was a a long sketch with a lot going on that just didn't work to get to a handful of moments that kind of almost worked. It just, it just didn't go anywhere. Yep. Okay. Moving on to Melania moments, the housemaid thoughts. It's, it's kind of playing itself out now. Yeah. The concept, I don't think it holds enough substance to keep revisiting it, especially where they're not taking it to, higher levels. I think, I think it's kind of fizzling and it seems to be getting less inspired and more like, well, we need a millennium moment. What are we going to do? Yep. That's, that's pretty fair. Um, I'm trying to be kind to it because not every deep thought by Jack Handy was genius either. I mean, they're not all going to be as good as the first one or even the second one. I thought both of the last two were fairly solid. I think the first one was pretty brilliant. Actually, the second one held up and boded well for the, the bits longevity. But this one, I think clearly, like you said, it kind of just says that maybe it's out of steam. Yeah. Okay. The great British bake off. I'm not entirely sure that I know what they were trying to say with it. I think this was just simply Emily Blunt can do a good kind of like cockneyed accent and Cecily can support her in that. So you have two, contestants from the wrong side of the tracks. And then you have all the hoity toity people that are really into baking and not just into boozing it up and being trashy and trying to get on big brother. Right. So you, you've got worlds colliding and it's meant to be funny. I didn't feel that it really was. Yeah. I got what they were trying to do. You know, two people who wanted to be on big brother. So they weaseled their way onto a different reality show that was in no way related to big brother or like big brother at all. But they come on, they try to turn it into Big Brother, you know, making conflict, trying to start yeah. fights, yep, yep. doing confessionals. <laughs> yeah. I, I saw what they were trying to do with it. And yeah, I don't think it really came together. No. And I think like, I think you really pegged what the concept was. Yeah. I had trouble really crystallizing that. Like I had trouble latching onto it and saying definitively that I think that's what they're going for. So my hunch is that probably a lot of people, some of that went over their head and they're just thinking that this is just kind of a dumb sketch about two girls with trashy accents being ridiculous. Okay. Anything else to say on that? No, I already said more than I thought I would. (laughs) Great. Okay. We are at our 10 to one sketch hamster cage. Set this one up for us. What, what is the point of this 10 to one? Well, I guess that's a a true uh, fact of nature that introducing domestic hamsters to (laughs) (laughs) already established hamsters may lead to some initial conflict. So they take that factoid of nature and uh, imagine it as a reimagining, I I guess, of uh, who's afraid of Virginia Woolf, the, uh, the stage play. 
Okay, so you picked up on that. Good. I yeah. I want I wanted to make sure I wasn't digging too deep on that. Oh no, it was very obvious with the transatlantic accents yeah. and the the olives floating in their martini. Yeah, did you see the I love that when I first picked up on the olives in the little uh you know the the hamster watering bottles with the with little the little ball that they lick, yeah. <laughs> and uh Kate McKinnon licks it. She actually does like uh fidget <laughs> with it to try to get some water at one point. Of course. Yeah, that was that was really good. Okay, so so my question to you is since you get the concept and I think we're on the same page with what they were going for, did you think in execution that this worked? Not as well as it could. Okay. It did on a few levels. All right. But once I saw that connection and realized what they were doing, I was like, oh, okay, you, you have my attention. Yeah. But I, I don't think Beck was the best casting choice. Who would you have put in the role as the, the surly husband? Uh yeah, but that's the thing. I don't think they have a cast member that could actually do it as well as I would like to see. And maybe that's why I had such a problem with Beck doing it. Sure. But imagine if they still had Bill Hader. Like Bill Hader doing that would have probably been <laughs> legendary. He can kind of spit a little, you know, when when he's scathing. Yeah. I can see that. And have uh, Fred Armisen in Kate McKinnon's role in drag. <laughs> that would have been great. Actually, I hate that you said that because I want to see that sketch now. <laughs> And until documentary now plays up <laughs> Virginia Wolf, it's just never going to happen. But <laughs> if they're listening, you guys need to do that. That's gold right there. And we only need, you know, 5% on the backside to make this thing happen. Let's do this. Yep. Yep. Seconded. Yeah. So anyways, I actually thought the performances were really good. I really, really loved the try, like the effort and the idea and pushing this through to the live show. Yeah. But the problem is, and, and on first watch, the real problem that I had was I was so disenfranchised at this point with the show because of how clunky all the live stuff was. I wasn't cutting it any slack. So every little beat that wasn't perfect, I was more frustrated by than I would have been on an otherwise even keeled show. Fair enough. Yeah. So that is our run through of the material for the show. What do you think was the high point or best moment of the night? Best moment, huh? Yeah. Are you ready for it? I'm ready. Are you all ears? I am all ears. <laughs> Chalk! <laughs> all right. <laughs> when they dropped that, like when they finally gave in and said, okay, here's what we've been building to, and they dropped the word and it's on the screen and block letters at the same time, that was a really fun moment. No doubt. I think that is the moment of the night, like the actual best landed joke of the night. Best overall sketch. My favorite sketch would be chunk as a whole. I was going to go with chunk too. I think that that's probably the obvious call because it end to end from concept to execution to the amount of laughter that it got. It was the winner of the night. Anyways, MVP. I'm going to give it to Cecily strong. Yeah. For what in particular? She was really good with her character work for all the problems we had with the, uh, the baking mm -hmm. uh, reality show. That was uh, probably the most committed out of any cast member to a character of the night. Okay. Fair enough. She had a lot to do and uh, it was a reminder of how, uh, how much they lean on Cecily a lot of the time. Yeah. Yeah. Nothing bad to say about Cecily, but I'm going to give it to Kate, even though she's the obvious choice because she's kind of like the quarterback of the show right now. Her performance of Hillary Clinton in the cold open today was, I think, the most on point I've ever seen it. I felt her mannerisms, the character of her voice, 
and just how effectively she took all the bits that the writers threw at her and turned them into really fun physical comedy. Like even just, I'm now going to perform a lean, right? Like a casual lean. Like you have to be really good at figuring out what makes a lean funny and then figuring out how to perform that again with very little prep or opportunity to fine tune it just in the moment, just make that work. I I don't know if people understand just how difficult it is to pull off some of that stuff without it feeling really cringeworthy to the audience. And I didn't feel like anything that I saw from her on screen was anything less than comedic perfection tonight on a scale of classic, great, typical week or train wreck. Where does this rank? See, I've been trying to decide on typical or weak because mm-hmm. I'm I'm hovering between those. Yep. We know we're in that range, but yeah. moment of truth, gun to your head. Was this a typical episode or a weak episode as far as you're concerned? You know what? Chonk saved this episode from being weak. <laughs> okay. This is a typical episode for a few good moments, but an overall weak episode that just happened to have the most laugh out loud funniest moment I've seen in a long time on the show. Okay. You know that I was super high on Lin-Manuel Miranda's episode last week. And we were both really, really stoked with how the season kicked off. So we are coming off of two really positive experiences that have set the bar high. And when expectations are high and then an episode is possibly just typical, it can feel less than typical because you were hoping for more. So I'm trying to separate my enjoyment of the last couple episodes from where this objectively should rank. My thinking is if I'm going to be objective, I still think that this was a weak episode in my mind. It's weak because it's not that the live sketches were, was just weak material. The execution throughout the show seemed to be weak, right? I think this could have been a typical show or, or even a better than typical show. If for whatever reason, there wasn't so much fumbling and missed beats and stilted lines. It just seems like for whatever reason, the show wasn't firing on all cylinders. But anyways, that is a whole lot of analysis on a middle of the road show. So why don't we call it a cast? Thanks to my guest, Steve Finn. You can connect with Steve on Facebook at Transparency CHMR. And you can connect with us at snlafterparty.fm. If you're enjoying our podcast, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes. These reviews help us to get the word out and they're greatly appreciated. We'll be back in one week when SNL returns with host Tom Hanks and musical guest Lady Gaga. This has been episode number three of the Saturday Night Live After Party Podcast. I'm John Murray. Good night and have a pleasant tomorrow. Thank you. Thank you to Bruno Mars. Thank you. size. You're a woman and you deserve clothes that fit and flatter. 
You are confident. So confident. Prove them wrong. You rock it. I rock it. You rule the world. Hell yes, I do. That's why you shop at Junk. 